Welcome to Sustainable Action Matters, where you meet the people who are impacting sustainability behaviors on scales that matter. We'll explore the most effective actions for creating a greener future and how behavioral science is applied to scale them up. I'm your host, Todd Rogers. Chances are, right now, if you're not driving, you're sitting in a building that is heated by natural gas or maybe even heating oil, and you're probably quite happy with that. And yet, in the coming years, we hope to convince you to scrap your existing heating system and replace it with one driven by electricity. Building electrification is fast becoming one of the driving forces of efforts to mitigate climate change. Yet, this initiative, which was barely on the radar even five years ago, is largely unknown and not understood by the public at large. And the unique challenges of electrifying large buildings are especially daunting and lead to questions about how we will motivate building owners to make the jump. We are also asking them to do this quickly. The Biden administration has set a new target for the U.S. to achieve a 50 to 52 percent reduction in greenhouse gas pollution by 2030, along with a goal to achieve net zero emissions economy-wide by 2050. To get an idea of the scale of this effort, I went to Donovan Gordon, Director of Clean Heating and Cooling for the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, or NYSERDA, and Ian Shapiro, founder of Tatum Engineering in Ithaca, New York, and one of today's leading voices in the building performance field. Honestly, it's going to be millions of buildings. Uh, there are uh, almost four and a half million buildings in New York State, which we have to try to, you know, to residential and commercial, we need to convert. Gargantuan. It's the, the task we have to electrify our building stock when, oh my gosh, in, the, in New York State, over 90%, 95% is, is fossil fuel heated, mostly natural gas, but we still use a lot of uh, number two fuel oil. And we use a little bit of number four fuel oil and a little bit of propane. So we're talking about changing the heating systems in millions of buildings. That's just one state. Nationally, 70 million buildings burn natural gas, oil, or propane to heat their space and make hot water. But first... What does building electrification really mean? So electrification in the building context means to stop burning fossil fuels to, to heat and produce hot water within the building. That's Sean Brennan of the Urban Green Council. He's their associate director of research. He is responsible for identifying and executing studies that reveal industry trends and influence building design. Now, you might think, does that mean we're going to bring in space heaters and just plug them into the wall sockets? No, we're talking about heat pumps in this case. Uh, and so there's a big difference between using electrical resistance to heat a building uh, versus heat pumps. And it really comes down to a one-to-one -one ratio for resistance. You get one unit of heat for one unit of electricity versus heat pumps, where we're hoping to get three units of heat for every one unit of electricity. So it's really a night and day difference between the old 
uh, electrified heating and today's cold climate heat pumps. So building electrification primarily comes down to installing heat pumps. Not entirely, but we'll get to that later. If you live in a warmer region like the southern United States, you're probably familiar with heat pumps, and you know that like an air conditioner, they can cool your home, but they're also capable of providing heat. In cooler months, a heat pump pulls heat from the cold outdoor air and transfers it indoors, and in warmer months, it pulls heat out of indoor air to cool the building. Because they move heat using refrigerant rather than generating heat, heat pumps can provide equivalent space conditioning at as little as one quarter of the cost of operating conventional heating or cooling appliances with similar reductions in carbon emissions. Now, if you live in a heating-dominant climate, like the northern U.S., you may be familiar with the difficulties we've had with heat pump technology in the past. I went to a heat pump expert to give us some background. And I designed heat pumps. I hold a few patents on heat pump inventions. That's Ian Shapiro again. He's an old friend of mine. Oh, my gosh. You know, my whole career. It's like my wife was saying about 10 minutes ago. I said, I'm going to talk to Todd about heat pumps. She said, your, your whole career, you started with heat pumps and you came back to heat pumps. So in 1983, I started out designing heat pumps at Carrier. It was exciting. It was understood to be a energy conserving technology back then. I was surprised that Carrier was already making so many heat pumps. They were already making hundreds of thousands of heat pumps a year in the early 80s mostly for sale in the American South. They had tried to enter the Northern market and it had been a mixed, mixed experience. I asked Ian to tell us about this mixed experience and how it has formed perceptions about heat pumps even to this day. Probably 40% of the U.S. is defined by the Department of Energy as cold climate. 40%. If you include Canada, you're up to, you're approaching 50%. So the entire Northeast, uh, the Midwest, upper Midwest, and then down through the Rockies. So you're talking Utah, Colorado, that's all cold climate, a significant part of the Northwest and all of Canada. So cold climate is important. And this goes back to, to basically the failure of heat pumps the 1970s and 1980s, they were all single speed heat pumps. They couldn't speed up, which a heat pump needs to do, to put out more heat when it's cold outside. An old fashioned single speed heat pump does the exact opposite of what you need. When it's cold outside, it puts out less heat because it's extracting heat from the outdoors. So there was this basic of failures in the 70s and 80s. Then we discussed some of the other barriers to acceptance. A heat pump looks different. It feels a little different. You know, it heats, it, heats, it heats a building, whether it's a house or whether it's a high-rise building. It, it heats the building. You come into the building, you'll be warm. And, but it looks a little different. And the airflow feels a little different. Uh, not very different, but a little different. People are sometimes resistant to change. And then there's issues and differences in how the thermostats work. And most of these are Japanese products, Korean products. We've got a lot, a lot of Korean manufacturers in the US. And they, a lot of them use remotes, just like a TV remote. 
but it looks a little different than what you're used to. There are definitely behavioral, they're not big, but there's adjustments that need to be made. To learn even more about how perceptions are driving consumer acceptance, I went to Donna Whitset. Yeah, so I am a managing consultant at TRC, which is a company that works across uh, multiple industries, but focuses on you know, power and utility uh, sector. We surveyed over 500 consumers and also did in-depth interviews with about 30 other types of market actors. So that ranged from installation contractors to new construction builders and property managers and and a variety of market actors of that sort. Uh, Your research found that only 25% of respondents were interested in adopting efficient electric technologies. Um, Is it fair to say that there's really not a lot of impetus to change Um, that this is something that isn't even on people's radars yet? So we found only 25% of people were, you know, willing to switch their home to all electric or purchase an electric piece of equipment, such as a heat pump, heat pump water heater, or induction cooktop. It seems small, I agree, Um, especially when you compare that with the almost 70% who were not willing to do any of those things. It's encouraging, though, I think, because it gives you somewhere to start. These people are interested um, with a little education, especially are interested. And so it gives you a starting point. Um, You know, they're not the early adopters. They haven't done anything yet, but they're also not the laggard. So the associations with natural gas are positive and they are strong and dominant. For example, customers see natural gas as being cheap, which right now it is very cheap. That is true. They also see it as being more effective. Um, They really have that image of a flame producing heat. So when they want heating in their home or they want to cook something, uh, that, that flame is producing that heat quickly and they also think efficiently and more effectively than electricity. Customers are not associating natural gas with greenhouse gas emissions, which is really fascinating because natural gas is actually a big contributor of methane emissions, one of the most harmful greenhouse gases. The other thing is they're not associating natural gas with indoor air pollution in their homes. So for example, if you don't have a vented gas range, you know, that natural gas stove is, is contributing to the you know, poorer indoor air quality inside your home. And people just don't think about that. And the issues are not just with consumers. Even early adopters can run into barriers. And, and that's because of the, the challenges I was describing with installers you know, installers have the same attitudes and misperceptions that consumers do for the most part. I won't say all of them, but, but many are having these same barriers. I'll just give my own example, right? So I've lived in two different states recently over the past <laughs> three years. And in both states, I, I tried to um, 
I had older HVAC equipment in, in the home I had purchased. And I approached contractors to figure out if a, a heat pump would make sense for me. And in both cases, I was really dissuaded from upgrading to a heat pump. Contractors, just like consumers, think if you have gas equipment in place and you're upgrading it, you get another piece of gas equipment. There's no reason to switch to electric. It's just not on people's minds at all. So even if you're an early adopter, um, I don't know if I was necessarily an early adopter, but on the early side of things, it can be challenging just finding the right contractor who is willing to install that equipment and you know is not going to actually persuade the customer to stick with the gas furnace in my case. And what about water heaters? Hot water is the second largest category of energy use in residential homes. And yes, there are heat pump water heaters that can efficiently and effectively electrify your hot water production. Now, does anybody really know what a heat pump water heater is? <laughs> uh, a lot of consumers have never heard of a heat pump water heater. In fact, when we spoke with plumbers, many of them had low knowledge of heat pump water heaters and had, for example, never installed a heat pump water heater. Uh, plumbers were very used to installing like-for-like -like equipment. So if a customer called and said, hey, my water heater just broke and they had a gas water heater, they would install another gas water heater without even thinking about it or questioning it. And Ian Shapiro's thoughts on heat pump water heaters? The good news is that for a traditional American home with a basement, we have these standalone heat pump water heaters that turn out to be fabulous. They're, um, they cost a little over $1,000. So they cost more than a gas water heater. But again, there's rebates for them. And it only takes a couple hours to install them. It's a very, very easy installation. That's the good news. And I put one in my house about five or six years ago, and I kind of scratched my head. I said, I wonder if this is going to work. And I wonder it's, if it's going to need a lot of service, you know, because it has a fan and a compressor. I was a little worried. Five or six years later, it hasn't needed any service. You know, once a year, I take the air filter and I bang it and I put it back. No service at all. I've got a family, myself, my wife, two teenage daughters, we're four of us, and it has not once run out of hot water. Even when we have, uh, you know, my brother and his family, we've got a house full of seven or eight people. This water heater has never run out of hot water. And then about six months ago, we're participating in some kind of a NYSEG uh, utility experiment. So they put electric meters on, on, a, on several of the loads in, in our homes. We're, we're one of a few thousand participating. So I've got data on how much my hot tub is using and how much my boiler is using. I've got all this data. So we had an exchange at work where a few of us who are in this program said, you know, how much is your heat pump water heater using? So I looked at mine, I said, you know, I see mine is only using 800 kilowatt hours a year. I was blown away. That's a, a, an electric resistance water heater will typically use two or 3,000 kilowatt hours. I said, well, mine's working really well. And I said, uh, you know, to some of my colleagues, what, what's your using? So they went and they looked it up and every single one came back 
using less than a thousand kilowatt hours a year, every single one. So these heat pump water heaters are turning out to be a big win, big win. They're affordable. They don't need much service. They're reliable. They're putting out enough heat and they're extremely efficient. In fact, all the experts I spoke with indicated that the electrification technologies for single-family homes are mature, efficient, and in most cases affordable, especially with state incentives available in many areas. Even the issues with heat pumps pulling their weight in the coldest weather have been addressed. What's happened is the introduction of variable-speed heat pumps and when it's cold outside, the compressor speeds up and it's able to extract more heat. And then, oh my gosh, in the last 10 years or so, there's been a standard developed called the Cold Climate Heat Pump Standard, developed by NEEP, the Northeast Energy Efficiency Partnership. So uh, they're out of Boston. They, they came up with a standard that says, to meet our standard, you need to put out so much heat at five degrees. And five degrees is is pretty good for the for most of most of the northeast certainly new york state and even below five degrees they can still extract heat down to zero down to most of them more to, uh, at least to minus 13 minus 18 there's a new one out minus 20 degrees so they really are able to deliver heat at these low uh, cold temperatures and that's been the big new development in the last 10 20 years this brought me back to Donna Whitsett for another question. I guess in terms of um, this task before us, you know, we, we, it seems we have our, our work cut out for us. Um, if we have to get 100% of our buildings electrified in what's really a relatively short time frame, um, what potential interventions could a utility promote to influence customers and accelerate electrification. To help achieve goals around greenhouse gas emission reduction, I think the interventions need to be in a couple of different places. So first of all, utilities and other organizations really need to increase awareness on the consumer side. Right now, awareness is it's there for heat pumps as I mentioned and not there for heat pump water heaters. <laughs> and customers need to be convinced a little bit on induction cooktops. That really needs to happen because in order for contractors to begin promoting this equipment, they, also, they need to see that demand from customers. They're not necessarily gonna stock this equipment until they see that demand from customers. So the other piece is there needs to be some contractor training and you know installer training. As I mentioned, plumbers aren't installing heat pump water heaters. They don't necessarily um, have familiarity with them. They don't necessarily think they're a great technology. So the, the contractors need to be convinced as well. So some training awareness on the contractor side is also really important. Um, you know, if a customer is looking to change from a gas furnace to a heat pump, they need to be able to find a contractor who is willing and able to install that equipment for them. And then I'll mention one other thing, which 
is the cost piece because switching from gas to electric does have an added cost, which is in some cases you're gonna have your gas line removed going to that old equipment and you're gonna need to install an electric line in place. In some cases you might need panel upgrade. Uh, so that doesn't come without a cost. And so there I think the utilities have been very good about providing financial incentives for energy efficiency upgrades. And I think they could do something similar with you know, beneficial electrification upgrades. Yes, of course, heat pumps have been around for a long, long time. Um, so in Asian markets, they're even more well-established than in the American market. But American single family home, homes have adopted heat pumps quite well. Um, even in cold climates like New York and Massachusetts. Uh, but we haven't seen them in multifamily high-rises. Sean Brennan is setting us up for part two of this episode. While we have our work cut out for us when it comes to convincing single-family homeowners to make the switch, the table is well set with regards to the technologies. But when it comes to large buildings, things get a little more complicated. To be sure, we can't reach our goals without them. And when we continue, we'll hear more from our experts on this part of the problem and also about one state's response. And if you can't wait for part two to be released, we have lots of resources available from today's guests on the episode page at energytrainers.net forward slash podcast. For example, you will find a link to the Urban Green Council study, Going Electric, along with a great infographic on steps large building owners can take to electrify. You'll also find the link to switcheson.org, recommended by Donna Whitsett, along with a link to her research group at TRC. A link to NYSERDA's clean heating and cooling program is provided there as well. And by the way, we will be hearing a lot more from Donovan Gordon of NYSERDA in part two. And finally, information is provided on Ian Shapiro's latest book, Green Building Illustrated, co-authored with Francis D.K. Ching. Thanks for joining us today. Sustainable Action Matters is a production of Energy Training Solutions, and you can find us at energytrainers.net forward slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the podcast and listen to past episodes.